Hello. Hi, is this Oren? Yeah. Hi, Sean. How are you? Good. Excellent. How are you? I'm doing great. So thanks for joining me today. No problem. Uh, well, let's just get into it. Tell me a bit about yourself. So, um, so let's see. I'm a developer, Ruby developers in uh, last last five five or so years, mainly focusing on Ruby, with interests in distributed systems, security, functional programming, and a few other things. Currently working at uh, Desk.com as a member of the API team and just not long ago, the platform team. Okay. So desk.com, why don't you tell us a bit about what that is for people that aren't familiar? Um, okay. So um, desk.com is a customer service application. So um, usually, um, so let's say you're a small company, usually what you do for, um, for customer service, if you just are starting out, you're probably managing customer support requests via uh, a shared Gmail account. Um, this is what most people do, and when it, you know, after some time, most people start to grow out of the solution when they want to have multiple agent resp agents responding to to people when they want to have uh, a better sense of what's going on in their support requests or when. Uh, they just want to have some more sophisticated rules. For example, let's assign this uh, support request to, to that agent or things like that. So when, when it comes the time to, um, to, to come to something more, a little bit more sophisticated, they, they come to us usually. To, so desk.com, they just sign up. Um, and just like you can think about it as a Gmail++ for customer support, plus we have many, many other things. So we support other channels like Twitter, Facebook, um, chats. So whatever channel that they have, everything everything comes to this super uber mailbox that lets you track everything and do many other things like have reporting, assign special rules. So quite a few things you can do there. And the company is owned by Salesforce, right? Yep, yep. We were acquired around two and a half years ago by Salesforce. So, um, were you there it, before and after? I was there. I was joined a couple of months after that. Okay. So, yeah, I don't, I'm not sure how it was before. I mean, I I only heard stories of how it was before, but we'd like to think about, about ourselves of still maintaining this uh, startup atmosphere and, and attitude from within Salesforce and Salesforce has been very good in letting us continue to do what we what we are good at um, at the same time they have supported us in many things that startups are usually not so good at or you know need, need some help so I think it's been working great so far I think the uh, the Ruby and Rails community's relationship with Salesforce.com is kind of interesting because the you know on the one hand DHH is always railing against Salesforce for for this and that, but then you know everyone or not everyone but many people use Heroku to host their apps, and I think a lot of people feared what would happen when a big company like Salesforce bought Heroku, and then uh, it's, they've just gotten better since then. So that's been upside. Right. And, and frankly, I don't think that many people know that 
desk.com is built on Rails. Yeah, yeah. So we've been, uh, we're built on Rails, and yeah, you, you touched on uh, the more famous acquisition, Ruby, yeah, related to Ruby World is Heroku, and yeah, I can, I can probably say I'm a coworker of Matt's, so <laughs> that's uh, not so many things, not so many people can say that in the Ruby community. Not that I interact with them on a, <laughs> uh, but I could, I suppose. Right. Well, he's in he's in Japan usually. Where are you physically located? So, so I'm physically located at uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and um, so so I'm I'm not the only desk.com employee. There's another uh, desk employee here in Pittsburgh, but most of the dev, dev team is. Uh, remote, so we work all over the place. We have people in San Francisco. We have people in Long Island office where Sisley, which this, this was the name of uh, the company before that, before it was called Desk. So Long Island was where the um, Sisley were was located. Uh, but we have people all around. We have people in Australia. We have Canada. We have many other places. Well, that'll be good to talk about sort of coordinating remote work. I like that topic. Uh, sure. How'd you end up in Pittsburgh? So um, I'm so if you probably uh, not sure you can tell um, where I'm from by my accent, but I'm originally from Israel. So I came to uh, Pittsburgh uh, to study in Carnegie Mellon University it's for for grad school in computer science, and um, I since then graduated obviously and decided to stay because it was a nice uh, nice city. So I just I just stayed. What I'm I think I've mentioned this on a previous podcast, but I used to live in Pittsburgh, and I my office was right on the border of Carnegie Mellon and Pitt. Um, oh, nice! I bet you'll know where on Craig Street. Um, yeah, yeah. There is a there's like a Vietnamese restaurant um, that the people seem to like, and I was in the backside of that restaurant. Nice. I live. I'm a five minute drive from there, and yeah, yeah obviously studied next to it, so I know exactly where it is. Cool. So you think uh, Pittsburgh is uh, is home for a while then? Yeah, yeah. I have uh, um, so I have a family. I have four kids, a wife. Uh, have a house here. So yeah, <laughs> sounds the it. new future. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much well, so. And Pittsburgh's a nice place, I think. Yeah, it's very nice. So uh, let's talk about. Yeah, I think there are many things we could talk about. We had a nice. Uh, email chat before this about some things that were on your mind, but to focus in, uh, cause I think there's a lot of good meaty topics. Let's dive into a couple specific ones that are on my mind lately. And, uh, so first is service oriented architecture. So in, in a, a few episodes ago, I talked to uh, Chad Fowler about the approach that they were using at Wonderlist to break their app, um, into, uh, I don't know, 20 something services that supported all right. of their various uh, clients. And, and it sounds like you guys are, are doing something similar. So why don't you talk to me a bit about that? All right. So yeah, so first it was a great episode with, with Chad and, uh, yeah, Wunderlist sounds like, uh, uh, they have a great architecture, at least moving towards something great. Mm-hmm. We are, I think we, uh, have an older code base, um, maybe three and a half years old so we are still so we still have um, a monolithic app for the most part I mean this is what 
powers most of our app. But we are, as you said, moving in the direction of, of having a more SOA application. So, which means that we try to break off, take parts of the application and create small applications, small services from it. Right. So, could could um, we use a couple of examples to talk through the decision making that you've been going through? Sure. So some 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 relatively easy things that that we already did is um, to to have our Rails app expose an API to the outside world, which both serves our customers and people do build a lot of interesting apps based on that, but also our own internal clients. So we have a web client that's using the the API now, and we have couple of mobile clients so th this is everything is using the ABI so um, and we're phasing out the, the things that are not we have something that's called the old agent which which is being phased out um, it's currently using rails views a lot of JavaScript but right so we're, we're trying to keep rails at, at you know stop at the API level right so this is this is the first thing that we're doing we're also trying to take some well-defined areas and uh, of the app and break them into individual services, right? So, uh, off an off service as something that we're we're um, in at least uh, late um, design stages. We're designing it, architecturing, architecting it. Um, and we have a few other candidates that we're we're breaking breaking off and we have some services that are already you know already standalone so for example we have a postmark integration so postmark uh, gives you mailboxes like uh, gmail just like a gmail mailbox only that lets you do it with with an api let's us do it and manage it with an api so um all interactions with postmark are, do are done by a standalone sinatra app that's um, that's separate from our, our main app. This is just one example of the the services that we have. All right, so let's let's go back to the beginning of what you said. And there are a whole bunch of things to ask about. Sure. So, um, uh, talk to me about the approach that you've used with your API. So I'm I'm in the middle of building a, a handful of new APIs right now, and I settled on the uh, JSON API schema. Right. Um, I'm curious what you settled on, why, and and you know what trade-offs you saw there. I mean, so, um, I mean, yeah, our our API, we, it's, it's um, it's a RESTful API. We do have a JSON schema. We, if you if you go to our API documentation, um, we are adding almost always adding more and more features so the, the the main as I think as I mentioned before we are building the um, our application based on based on this API so and we want other people to be able to do that so we're, since we have so many features in the product it's, it's it's taking us some time to catch up in the API and expose all this functionality but right. we are we are slowly Right, slowly um, exposing everything, as, and and I think almost everything that we use in so everything that we use in our in agent right now is open, in, in our clients is open to the to the public uh, via our, our API. 
Have you taken a look at the uh, JSON API schema, the standard? Um, I I haven't. No. Yeah, I, I I'd recommend it. I, I think it's super okay. interesting. So I I always feel a little bit of stress when I'm writing an API, you know, because the just making choices about do I you know, do I embed the uh, related resources? Do I pull them up to the top level and then link to them somehow? You know, do I use hrefs to connect the the resource or to a document to its related resources? You know, questions like that. Yeah, and. Well, I- I don't like when they, you know, it, it sometimes bothers me when I, you know, make two different APIs and they each go a slightly different direction on some of those um, questions because then you can't reuse clients that know how to parse the API responses easily. Anyways, JSON API is sort of a set of standards around how you uh, how you format the um, a resource and its documents and its relationships and the links. And I don't know. I, I like it. I like it just because it takes away a bunch of decisions for me, and I generally agree with the choices that they made. Yeah. We, we try to follow the uh, HAL, the Hypertext Application Language specification, which uh, sort of answers the what what you just mentioned. Yeah. HAL is like an alternative to JSON API, so I think that yeah. that's... Yeah. Cool. How, how's that going? Do you... Do you, do you stick to it pretty um, religiously, or do you deviate where you know in some places? Yeah, well, as you know, it's you never you can never stick to anything religiously. We we do deviate, but not in major waves. So so far, we've been we've been happy. Our customers have been happy with it, and I think it's pretty consistent. So I think we'll we'll keep it for. Yeah. It seems like consistent and then, you know, not changing it are the two key things. Yeah. Um, or at least not changing it within a version. I mean, it's fine, I guess, if you have different versions of the API. But Right. Um, so, so let's talk about the, the sort of Rails app as an API and, and, and where you draw the line. So it sounds like you're increasingly draw the, drawing the line that the, the Rails app is responsible for serving back a JSON representation of the resource, and then other apps are responsible for rendering those resources into views. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. It's pretty much the new agent is an Ember application, so yes. Um, so uh, talk to me about that. Do you feel like that's a... Uh, you feel like that's going pretty well? What are your experiences so far with Ember, if you've got any direct experiences? Yeah, I have. I don't have a direct experience with Ember. I know that uh, the team that's doing that is pretty happy with it, um, and this the separation is 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 nice and clear. It lets, lets us clearly define the API, right? The the API between between us. Um, there's there's a natural there's an inherent I would say tension or problem in in uh, and the restful APIs, not everything is a resource or or let's put it this way, actions. When you want to perform some actions on resource or, or on the system, it's not always clear what's the resource that you need to perform the action on. And specifically when you have actions that need to span multiple resources, it's not uh, entirely clear where you you want to put this action on. Right? So that's that's something that uh, I guess every sophisticated or um, non-trivial REST API needs to needs to deal with. 
I mean, advocates of rest would always say, and whether they're right or not, I think is a separate point, but they'd always say that if it feels that way, you're missing a resource. Um, yeah, yeah, I know they say that. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> I'm not sure I, you know, you can always make everything a resource, but sometimes it just doesn't feel right. Some things are actions. Mm-hmm. What's, a, what's an example of that, if you have one that we could talk through for a minute? Um, let's see if I have any specific example. Um, yeah, I don't know. I was like to say, um, set changing a setting, but this can be thought of as, as a resource. Yeah. I don't have any specific example right now. I mean, every day or two, I feel that tension about something, you know, where like a a good example of this is I, I used to feel that tension about the search action on a resource. Yeah, um, but I've I've moved pretty completely to using the index action for that, and so, just having a, a Q param set the query. Yeah, so the search action is actually a good example. We have very sophisticated um, search support, right? We use Elasticsearch, and we can do many many things. And uh, right, if a search is as yeah, you can search on on cases. On many other, what if, what if you just want to search on on everything, right? On mm-hmm. our system, on cases and on customers and on all the other entities that you have in the system. There's not not a good place to, or not an obvious place to put the uh, the action on. Yeah, I mean, so not, the, like the federated search action, the the yeah. cross domain. Yeah. Yeah, this is one of them. I'm not sure if it's a great example for this point, but um, yeah. But we're certainly also we have a lot of options. We have a lot of parameters we can we we can pass to it. We can, right? So all all these things. So so do you know much about Elasticsearch before I ask too many questions about it? Um, yeah. I mean, I know about about it. There. Um, so so either, it's, it's yeah. been like a total revelation for me. So I this is good timing this conversation because I just started to use Elasticsearch this past week, and. Uh, I I kind of can't believe that I didn't realize how amazing it was until now. Um, yeah. So so what do you guys do? Do you do you index all of your you know main models like case or customer or uh, yeah, yeah we do we do we also we also index our knowledge base articles. So we haven't talked much about it, but um, you know in a customer support system, you want to make sure that your customers um, have a place to go and look for answers themselves so part of our solution is to give you a nice way to um to put this we call it the portal right so we index and customers want to be able to search this so this is one more thing that we that we index using elastic but yeah pretty much every every model everything including the knowledge base everything is indexed and yeah it's it's been it's one of the um we started using Elastic very early on, went to really early stages. It was a very early decision. That that obviously not me. I wasn't there. That was, I think, a good decision. Um, we worked closely with Shai, the the main guy behind uh, Elastic, and we've been very happy. Now, do you? Um, how do you expose your Elasticsearch index to? consumers of the API so we have we have two ways one in one of them we let 
we defined our own, pretty much our own uh, limited and simplified search capabilities. And the other one, we just exposed the elastic search syntax. So if you know, if you know your way around it, you can just pass us, uh, you know, a formed query that that you, you already that you already have, and we'll just return the results. So do you, you allow people to pass the query string syntax, or yes. uh, like a, a JSON object that represents the query object? Uh, we allow both, actually. Yeah. Yeah, the, so I, the, I'm using it for something similar, and I, I'm only doing the query string right now, but I think that allowing people to pass um, the query objects makes sense, too. I'm not sure yeah. if that's the right word for Elasticsearch, but you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. A string that you could parse into the JSON that you could pass. Yeah, um, pass yeah, it. I know. I know what you mean. So do you, do you expose that on the, the index actions of the resources, or do you, do you rely on a separate um, action to expose search for various things? We currently have both. So we have, um, if I'm not mistaken, we expose it on the index, so you can pass also the parameters. And we also have a search. We also have a search. So we can limit the so sort of, you can think about it as limiting the, uh, the index query. By adding by mm-hmm. adding more parameters, or uh, you can, if I'm not mistaken, um, um, just go to this search. So I think no. So actually, it's, it's two things. So it's list and and the search. Both are performing the same thing. So so one's just like syntactic, sure, yeah. and the other. Yeah, yeah. That, make, that makes sense to me. How does Elasticsearch hold up when you get to that scale? Um, it's holding up pretty well. I mean, we are, um, yeah, if you know, you know, we have an entire, an entire service for re-indexing. We are queuing up, we're queuing up all the, all the necessary changes and then issue a bulk re-index request to Elastic. And we have, so it's, it's pretty, took us some time to develop this, but we have the service that handles this using Redis as, as a cache, right? It keeps all the requests, then, then handles Elastic, the, the batch requests. And we keep a pretty close eye on it, right? By this, by this point of time, we, we know what the signs are for, for Elastic when, when it starts showing some signs of problems and when we need to re-index or to restart a node or do other things. Uh, we did encounter problems in the past just because I think we're one of the largest Elastic search deployments, but we've been, um, we, we figured out, pretty much figured it out also with the help of, uh, of you know, Shai and, and the other guys in and Elasticsearch itself. Do you use Sidekick or something like Sidekick to handle all of the the queuing and then retrying of the indexing jobs? Yeah, sure. We use Delay Job. Uh, we're thinking of moving to to Sidekick just because it's it's more efficient using threads. But yeah, sure. We have we have many many background jobs. Obviously, many things um, are done in an async way, not to block the transaction. So yeah, we have. I think sidekick, sidekick would be particularly good for something like this because you know it's mostly I/O and and 
you know, why not have a hundred psychic workers sitting there waiting for the responses to come back from yeah, from well, specific, specifically, yeah, specifically for the reindexing, we have like a standalone service that does it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we do have, um, yeah, but we do use pretty much everything else. We do use um, the jobs, just background jobs. So, so let's go back to the the way the things are architected between the the Ember app and the the Rails API or APIs. So, is is there a, a separate service running for, like, say, cases, and then a, a different one for knowledge base, and a different one for um, customers? I'm not, I'm not sure where the breakpoints would be. But, yeah. Um, or, or is it like kind of like one big app that you're just sort of stripping out parts of its responsibilities, like the rendering out to other apps? Yeah, it's more the latter than the former. Um, although we are th- thinking about the the former. So we have one big app and depending on the application we only expose parts of it, right? So right now we have our servers, our API servers, they still run the the big Rails app, which means they uh, they use more memory that that they should. Mm-hmm. But you know, this is this is the price that you pay for the relative simplicity of keeping everything in, in one big app, right? So other things, other parts of the applications, of the application, for example, the old but still s- still running, the old agent, what we call the old agent, is um, still served by, by Rails, right? So this is enabled there um, or just other, other parts of the application. So everything has um, just other endpoints exposed Right, other controllers serving it. Is the database the bottleneck in the setup then right now? Um, is it the bottleneck? Um, it seems like you'd have a ton of contention for the database in that main app. Yeah, yeah. There's, we are, yeah, in the process of sharding the database. We've been a- mm-hmm. able to uh, get away without sharding until now, but we are sharding it. So yeah, I, w- I would say it's definitely the the bottleneck as as expected, right? As expected from 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 a big complex app and yeah I mean if it's probably your next question but we are we're still using um, a SQL database specifically MySQL we're not using any any NoSQL database even though we're thinking about it for the some at least some services the new the new services I mean I guess Elasticsearch sort of counts as that yeah yeah this can it counts as yeah, even though this is not the only place we keep we keep the data, so st- still well, the data is um, right. The data just indexed in in Elastic, but um, you know all the models and the knowledge base is still in the database, in the SQL database. What kind of latency is there between when an update is made to the the canonical database and when the data is replicated into the indexes in Elasticsearch? Um, yeah, I'm not sure exactly. Um, it should be, should be, um, I would say, from a few seconds to to a few dozen seconds. Okay, so quick though. Yeah, it's like to, to the user, they would feel like they're the same. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Well, I should take a break and do our first sponsor because I have gone too long. Sure. Um, in email, you said that you guys uh, run a 
continuous integration server, right? Um, yeah, yes. All right, well, then I'll, I'll do that for our first sponsor. So uh, first sponsor today is CodeShip. Their continuous deployment made simple, and uh, you can learn more about CodeShip at codeship.io slash 5x5ruby. Um, let me tell you a bit about them. So in a, in a few steps, you can automatically depo- deploy your app to production or to staging when all your tests have passed using CodeShip. They've got great support for lots of languages and test frameworks, um, obviously Ruby and Rails and many others. They integrate with both GitHub and Bitbucket uh, on the code repository side. And then you can deploy to cloud services like Heroku or Amazon Web Services, Nojitsu, Google App Engine. Or if you've got your own uh, servers, you can deploy to them from CodeShip. They've got a free plan that you can start with, and setting uh, up your account takes just a few minutes. And really good news uh, for people that listen is now they're offering 20% off any plan for three months for listeners of this podcast. So if you use the offer code 5x5RUBY, that's 5BY5RUBY, you'll get 20% off any plan uh, for a full three months on CodeShip. So I would uh, encourage everyone to go to codeship.io. Watch the video that's on the homepage. I think it's a good tour of what the service is all about. You can start with a free plan, and again, if you want to sign up for a paid plan, you can save some money getting 20% off with the uh, code 5x5RUBY. Thanks to them for sponsoring. Yeah, they're, they're pretty cool. Um, I once showed up as a guest blogger on their, there. So, um, oh, really? Yeah, stop by their uh, blog and read my post there. What, what was the post about? Uh, it was titled "Slow Tests Are the Symptom, Not the Cause," and um, yeah, um, maybe we can have a link in the in the show notes. It's about I have a it's basically a refactoring mm-hmm. example on um, how you can how can you, you can make your tests much faster and how. Uh, the speed of the tests are just uh, not really the real cause, but the symptom for larger design issues. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing about that, that about going to a service-oriented architecture that that relates to the point you just made is, I, I think it's the the stress about fast tests tests goes down so much when you go SOA because each service, even even if its tests were you know slow compared to some benchmark of like you know milliseconds per or microseconds per individual test, given that, you know, you're only working on a given application at once and in isolation, um, they always seem fast because they're never that big. Right, right. And not only that, I mean, there's so many other advantages in moving into an SOA architecture, if only for the ease of development for for big teams and and our teams is is growing. So much more... You know, so many advantages is there. The other the thing that I'm focused on right now is is figuring out how to make a constellation of services work um, within the user facing app. So I'll give an example of what I was working on this morning. Okay. So um, I've got one service which is uh, carriers. So I, I, I uh, own a uh, transportation related business. So. There's a, a service for carriers. Carriers are like trucking companies. And then there's another service 
for regions. And regions are like uh, defined groups of postal codes. So you can imagine a trucking company has regions because those are the places that they service that are proximate to their physical locations. Okay, that's like the setup. All right. So what I wanted to do is have the 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 carrier app, so the place where you know you'd manage the information about the carrier, like what regions they have, when it displays the information about carrier regions, for it to just pull in the partials, including like the the Ajax forms from the region app, so that you could edit a carrier region, which is you know what it sounds like. Um, and be actually using both apps, through, you know, as the user, but just not know it. Um, yeah. And boy, I it, it Rails isn't exactly set up for this, so it takes a little bit of uh, thinking about how you want to architect it. But I really like the flow. I think it's super nice because then each app exposes, and this is why I asked about your your sort of API decision before about your Rails app. I like the idea of a Rails app also, in addition to its API, serving like a just a semantically marked up in a version of itself uh, as the, you know, like a show partial or an edit partial that another app can just use as its representation of itself. And then all of the, the styling and markup comes from whatever app that is sort of hosting the partials CSS. Yeah. So you, what you're describing is pretty much what Amazon is using or used to use in which their main you know, main page is actually um, rendering many many the re- many many requests from many many other apps right they have so many dozens and dozens of applications each of them is responsible for rendering or maybe only giving the data for you know one widget or one area right one for recommendations right. one for pricing one for the shopping cart so you're you're talking about something like this? Yeah, I, I, I get it. I think it's really fantastic. So, I mean, I've been making the, the, these new services using that approach. And aside from the early friction, it's, it's, it feels like um, how testing first felt to me when I got into uh, TDD more, where it slowed me down at first. Um, but then it didn't take long before um, it, it, it sort of both gave more confidence and made it easier to change things over time. So I'm digging it. Yeah, it's just like um, it's SRP, right? It's true meaning of SRP, um, single responsibility principle, right? You want every sing- every service to do one thing, do it well, and be limited in its scope, which helps you reason about the system and at the same time makes the API between the components much more clear and then you know then you can compose them more easily. Yeah. Yeah, so in in the case of what I'm making, this is why I asked about the databases before, each service has its own database. So the Yeah, conten- yeah, this is how it's the yeah, this is how it's uh, so low then. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. As long as you don't need to just join cross database, right? As, as long as you don't need to join the the data um before you you hand it to to users. And it sounds like you broke it in such a way that you don't, right? So that uh, each each service has its own its own data. Yeah, I mean, I think that there are cases where you'd need to join where you know you couldn't you couldn't just compose 
like so, so there would be cases where you'd need to ask the one app hey give me all of the IDs that you know match the whatever match this criteria and then use those IDs to filter a query in another system that holds a foreign key to those objects I mean right. I, I, that's a thing so I mean it's not like that doesn't go away but I think that um, paying a little bit more for the the you know getting those IDs from the other system and then you know set, doing the join basically by just sending the 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 just filtering on the column. Um, I think paying a little bit more there is, seems worth it to me. Right. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it depends. I think that there would be cases where it's not. But anything that requires a super heavy join generally was search-centric, and my, my current point of view is that Elasticsearch is probably a better answer than pounding the database with difficult in-memory joins. Right. Right. Uh, and I'm sort of wait, I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop on that point of view. Because, like, it, it feels like an amazing... Uh, yeah, as long as you can get the infrastructure up and working, it feels like an amazing trade-off. But you know, nothing's free. So, yeah, and and in any case, it will be much, it will be pretty hard to go back and retrofit it um, if if you're not building building it this way, right? We're pretty much where we're at right now. There's just pretty significant engineering effort in breaking up a big monolithic. Rails app into um, smaller set of applications, but at the same time, uh, maybe we would not have gotten where we are right now had we started right. Had we put all the effort in the beginning, so it's, oh, yeah. it's hard to say. Well, and, and regardless, right? I mean, you just do the best you can wherever you are. Right. Um, so, so let's talk about the the team environment at desk.com. It sounds like it's a relatively big team. Tell me a bit about the composition. Yeah, so we have, um, I think, developers-wise, I think we have 30, maybe 35 de developers, and, and we're growing. Um, most of us are Rails developers, but we do have some you know, people that only do or mostly do Ember or iPhone development. Um, so what we have is we have cross-functional teams. We have, uh, in each team, we have... Um, a bunch of developers, three or four. We have a designer, if you know, if if it's relevant for the team. We have a product manager, and we have a uh, a QE person, a QA person. And teams. And th by the way, this is a process that uh, this is something that we are still working on. But we are um, trying to make our teams more and more autonomous, right? So let the team be responsible for. Everything from designing a feature to shipping it and being responsible for it in production, and everything, obviously everything in between. So it's it's working out quite well for us. Um, a few things that we needed to put in place to make it to make it work is to make our deployment process uh, seamless and fast. Right, so right now we deploy several times a day, and each team can um, can deploy their own stuff. I mean, usually it's the 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 QA person that gives the final approval for that. But we can, or at least let, let me say this: we're moving in the direction of pretty soon we're gonna be able to deploy our own 
uh, or, or on releases. In any case, we're we're doing multiple releases a day, or possibly, you know, some days a little bit more, some days a little bit less. So as you go more service oriented, how do you handle the sort of increased testing complexity around integration of the services? Um, yeah, it's a good question. Uh, we haven't. So this is partly why we have QA people. So some things um, you can automate, right, especially when it's within within a, a single service or within in, inside the Rails app. But some things are very complicated to to test, or there are too many things, and maybe it doesn't worth um, writing automated tests for, such as multiple services talking to each other, and which maybe involve the UI. So this is partly why we have we still have QA people that uh, do some manual tests from time to time. So right? like so, on your laptop, can you? Easily start all of the services that are that kind of are the the constellation of apps that you guys run, and then have them talk to each other. Um, most of them, for sure. I'm trying to think if all of them. Maybe there's one or two that they can. I, I think pretty much all of them. Um, yeah, I do run all of them. I don't need all of them at the same time. Right. But yeah. but um, yeah, I can I can run all, all of them on my on my laptop. Yeah. Then how do you guys manage the going to use the wrong word for this, but the sort of DNS lookup of of where a given service is located um, in development versus in production or staging or whatever. Um, yeah, right now we don't have any uh, sophisticated way of, of solving this 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 problem, right? And we honestly don't have that many, right? You talked about Wunderlist. They have 20 or 30 services. We don't have that many yet. Okay. So it's not, not, a, not a big problem yet. So, so you just set, set them in a like, set an environment variable as the, the port number that each one's running on and then just connect to them that way? Yeah, pretty much. Pretty yeah. much. So not, not a huge deal yet. Yeah, I mean, there are, there are pretty smart um, uh, applications to handle this sort of thing. I haven't used any yet, but it's, it's on my mind given that the number of services is growing and you know, one of the things that I'd like, I'd love to have something like Foreman for starting all of the apps and then being able to kill all of them at once. So I would say like Foreman start constellation. And yeah. yeah, yeah, we do. I we do use Foreman locally. Um, yeah, for all these. Yeah, I, I, we, this is what we do use, and it is very nice to be able to start all this. Right, Redis and Elastic and all the other services and our own services. Yeah, and it is working out great. So uh, I should have asked this before, but I, I'm kind of surprised you guys use MySQL given um, Heroku and Postgres and the, their, their you know massive commitment to Postgres. Yeah, it's yeah, it's a good question. Um, yeah, we've been discussing it, considering it. Um, at this point, we have so much time and effort invested in MySQL that um, we we just. Right? Don't don't have don't have the time to do it, but we do know we do know, and we are familiar with Postgres. I personally worked with Postgres, and I I love it. Um, I think had we started today, we'd certainly use um, Postgres even without Heroku backing. But so far, MySQL is um, 
working great for us, and um, so we're happy. I was uh, I was sort of hoping that you would say earlier that you guys host on Heroku because that'd be very interesting given how big you guys are. But it doesn't sound like it. No, we're not we're not hosting on Heroku. Most, <laughs> things. Yeah. Are, are there ever those you know big company synergy meetings where someone decides that it would be so smart to do that? Those are funny meetings. <laughs> <laughs> no, we don't have. We I mean we don't have don't have that many meetings anyway. Um, and we when we do have it just all hands and, and they're pretty fun so we don't have we don't have these uh these kind of meetings so talk to me about a bit about your sort of personal work um environment do you work out of your house or do you go uh, elsewhere to work how's that work i yeah i mostly work at home i have my own office everyone at desk gets uh, uh a big cinema display so i have uh, you know two displays to work work at obviously um, macbook pros and um do you have, do you have the retina macbook uh, macbook pro uh no i'm due for an upgrade a lot of my colleagues got it but i'm pretty much pretty soon i'm gonna get it i don't i don't have it um yet i got one a few months ago i i, I absolutely underestimated how great it would be to have such a nice screen Nice. I, I feel like MacBook Pros and Elasticsearch are sitting in a tree for me. Two things that I like had some awareness of existing, and uh, for whatever set of reasons, totally underestimated their value to me. <laughs> yeah, it's got it's got me wondering what else I'm missing. This <laughs> like I really like pickles as an example, and I and I don't often have pickles at my house, and I don't understand why because I like pick I like I like them, and. Uh, but uh, anyways, Elasticsearch caused me to buy some pickles for my house. True story. Because I was like, I've got to start doing what I think is good. <laughs> I'm, I'm missing out. So what's it like to work at home with four kids? Is, is, does that get in the way at all? Um, in the beginning, it was. Um, but they're pretty, pretty good with it. They know that when dad is um, at the office, and just no one, no one goes in. So it's working out pretty pretty well yeah as i said because you like scowl or because they just know they just know i won't even open the door and <laughs> um you know they have their daddy time after work so i'm pretty much i'm trying to work like the normal working hours and then when i'm done i'm done and then uh, and then i'm w with them and you know if if i need to after they go to sleep i might work some time but i try to i i'm pretty disciplined and in the past i was just you know, half working, half playing most of the day, but um, <laughs> when I started to have kids, it just it just wouldn't work, right? I had my I had to have my time at work and then my my time with the family, and I had to be very disciplined about it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of trite, but I think it's true that you got to be where you are, you know. And if you're if you try to be everywhere, you're nowhere, you know. Right. <laughs> and and you know what? True. And the the time that um. Um, you know, I work eight nine hours at least, right? But let's say in a in a day I work eight or nine hours, I'm so much more productive than in in the days, let's say, as as a grad student or uh, in in my startup days when I was working, you know, twelve thirteen hours a day. Uh, I mean, there's just no comparison. At least, you know, so for me personally. Um, there, there's many things I disagree with DHH on, but on the advantages of, of remote work, I, I fully agree with him 
on it. <laughs> I feel the same way. I think every day the number of things that I agree with him on seems to go down. However, not that one. <laughs> we have common ground on remote yeah. work. <laughs> yep. uh, well, I should do our second sponsor, if you don't mind. Sure. Uh, everyone's favorite podcast sponsor, Squarespace. Um, let me tell you a bit about them. Uh, so Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, or online store. You can get a free trial and 10% off if you go to squarespace.com and use the offer code SPRING. I think it's so funny that they picked spring. I talked about this in the last episode, but I assume it's like an in-joke about the spring reloader, but I still I forgot, <laughs> I forgot to ask them this week. So there we go. Maybe, maybe they just uh, maybe it's encouragement for uh, programmers to get outside and notice that it's spring now. Yeah, I hope it's not for the Spring Framework, the Java Spring Framework. Yeah, it could be a throwback. <laughs> exactly. Um, all right, so Squarespace is constantly updating their platform with new features, new designs, and more support. They have beautiful templates for you to start with, and they have tons of style options for you to adjust, so you can really create your own space online. Everything's drag and drop, so it's easy to add content right from your desktop and even rearrange elements of content within a page. Squarespace, uh, make sure that your site always looks good on every device uh, because of its uh, unique mobile design for every theme. You can also connect all of your social services like Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and whatnot so that uh, your site's connected. If you want to sell something, they've got e-commerce on their platform. Uh, so, uh, in a few minutes, you can set up shop, list your items for sale and make some money. Uh, it's incredibly easy to use, but if you do need some help, they have over 70, uh, employees that are on the customer care team. Those employees are located both in New York city and Dublin and they're available 24 seven for live chat and, uh, email support. As I said before, you can try for free, no credit card required. And if you decide to make a purchase, the plans start at just eight bucks a month including a domain name if you sign up for a full year. Uh, make sure to get your 10% off discount and support this show and 5x5 by using the offer code SPRING. So thanks to Squarespace for supporting uh, the Ruby on Rails podcast. Awesome. All right. So uh, do you get to program at all uh, off work, or are you busy with kids and other things? Um, I do try to program off work. Um, currently, I'm exploring closure in my free time. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Uh, what, what caused that interest? Um, so, like many other Rubists, I was exposed to closure um, via Richiki, the creator of closure, and one of his many excellent talks. So, I, I recommend um, if, if our listeners haven't watched any of his talks, um, there's the Rich Hickey, um Greatest Hits, I think, if you Google for that, or we can put it in the, in the show notes. Um, he's talking about, about functional programming in general and about closure and specifically about the differences or rather the advantages that closure has over languages such as, such as Ruby or object-oriented programming um, languages. And now that you've, have you used Clojure enough now to sort of get a feel for um, those benefits and what they've meant to you and your programs? Um, I, I, 
I've used it a lot. Um, I'm already seeing the see, seeing the advantages. For example, you know, first and foremost, immutability. Right, this is just just huge. Right, being able to um, being able to work with immutable data structures and not deal with bugs that are related to staining ch staining uh, changing state mm -hmm. is huge. And right, so this is something I'm trying to take back to to my Ruby programming. Um, I, th I think that's a good point. So I, I've been doing the same lately, and it's not like uh, I mean immutability. I mean certainly language features can help with this. That's true, but um, just having the goal that uh, I'm only going to make things mutable if I've got a damn good reason, um, and and uh, sort of infusing your your Ruby programming with that has huge benefits. Yeah, yeah. So. The, the thing is, Ruby is not a functional language. It, it does have some functional aspects. And uh, by the way, as, as, a object or, as an object-oriented language, I just love it. I think it's uh, the best I know. And if you try to take these principles too far, you, you might get hit. And specifically, um, if you make everything immutable or many things immutable, you will create too many objects. And uh, as you know, that garbage collector and, and at least an MRI is has some problems especially when when you instantiate many many objects so this might cause some tensions but as long as you know as long as as you know your limit the limits of the of the language you can tweak it a little bit and, and take it a little bit more to the functional side of things without harming performance too much. You know, the place that I'm focused on right now about immutability and my Ruby work is is just around the database. In other words, like for every resource that I can possibly muster, making them not editable um, yep. is that that seems to me like a great start. Because right? that I mean that that's not that's less of a Ruby issue and I think more of a I don't know application design issue. But boy, does it simplify things. Yeah, there's. Have you heard of Datomic? Nope. So Datomic is, um, well, I, I'll say these words, but it's, it's untrue, but it's pretty much an immutable database. You can think about it as an immutable database. It's um, created by Richiki again, right, the creator of Clojure, and everything there, you can't really go back and change facts. Um, you, you just can't. Everything is an event with a timestamp, right. and uh, which makes it much much easier to reason about things and works great with closure but can also work with many other things so if you have something you know if you have a model or if you're thinking about this direction i would i would highly recommend looking at, at the atomic and um exploring this route i've heard many you know, many success stories and it's very interesting because it's very different from any other databases right is it a um I read the other day about event sourcing, which which seems similar to me. Is it, are, are they cousins or are they directly related? I think they're they're cousins. I'm not sure how much how much related they are. Um, yeah, I've got a little personal uh, project that I when I have a little bit more time, I'm going to work on probably the next few weeks, which relates to this, which is a uh, um, uh, an app that can replay NBA basketball games in terms of the events that happened to 
to understand the dynamics in ways that some of the stats don't. And I'm using that that kind of data structure for it so that you just replay the events yeah. to a particular point in time to figure out what state it was in. No, replayability is, is a huge win. If you can if you can have an app in which you can replay the the events, then you're, you're golden, right? You can reason about it. You can go back in time. You can figure out everything that happened. Nothing is lost. This is this is awesome. If you can, yeah, if you can, you can have an app that have this property. It sort of feels like you now. No, I'm not a, a physics. Uh, I wasn't a physics major, but. It just sort of feels fundamental to me that understanding both the thing as a as a particle and the thing as a you know uh, something that's in motion um, that that it, the more the app sort of respects the idea that things are in motion and that that's sort of a, a different idea than the thing being in a place I think is good. It just right. feels it feels like true to the underlying universe <laughs> that that we're part of. Right, right, and this is by the way this is uh, the main point of the which he is making in closure right and having something immutable is saying that the things in life are, are, are immutable or in the real world are immutable for the most part you just you don't think about places in which you store facts you, you think about the facts themselves or the data itself mm-hmm. right you don't you no know, anyway it's it's pretty it's Pretty much along, along these lines, I think uh, if you—I don't know if you've tried uh, closure or not. I know many Rubyists are, are very interested in, in closure and its philosophy, but I think it's very—it's—it's a—it's ve- very—it's a natural next step. Let's put it this way for Rubyists. There's a lot of a lot of it that uh, appeals to me and many other Rubyists. How's the syntax? Um, so, closure is a Lisp. So. Um, some people have some problems. They, they think it's too many parentheses. I personally don't think it's that that bad. But the syntax is very simple. Very very simple. There's only a few rules. And um, if if you like Ruby meta programming in Ruby, you will love um, closure macros or or Lisp macros. It, I, this is I do like meta, I do like meta programming in Ruby. So <laughs> so this is this is. Um, this is metaprogramming to the extreme because you can manipulate manipulate the um, the program itself directly, right? Everything you you write the AST the right the tree for the program and you could very easily. So here's here's one example. So many languages, let's say you need to add a, a major fe- feature to the language, you have to go through a process, right? Add some syntax because cl- closure is so flexible. They were able to add a library, um, which is called Core Async, um, which um, adds major major feature to the language, which is very similar to Go routines as as a library, right? So they were able to do it, and it's that's something that fundamentally changes the, how how things work, right? It's it's letting two processes communicate each other, mm-hmm. something that any other language, any other non-Lisp um, language would require a major version bump to the language. This this was done, again, as as a library, hmm. as a library that you can just use. I think this, and they've done it for other, many, many other, other features like core async, which is the logic 
programming style thing or even static typing annotations. It's just so flexible. So just like I, w- I like to, even if you don't use metaprogramming or like macros in enclosure, and it's the same thing for Ruby's metaprogramming. The fact that these tools are there makes the language so much more powerful. And you, as an as a developer, even if you're not using them, you're gonna enjoy the the fruits of others that that used these tools. Um, one of the things that I like about service-oriented architecture, to come back full circle to that, is sure. that it makes it much more. I think when when a, a set of applications are written in that style architecture, it opens the door to have the different services potentially written in in different languages much easier, Precisely. much more easily. And, and man, I think while I'm not I'm not really a I don't really have like a language fetish like some programmers do. I mean, I like the idea of having the flexibility to use something other than Ruby when it when the job you know calls for it. Yes, yeah. I, I sort of feel like Elasticsearch is a good example of that. Where, uh, you know, I just had this conversation with a guy that I uh, work with the other day, and we we're talking about how Java really felt like the right tool for search index, doing an inverted search, um, sort of solving that problem, and because uh, because I had had it in Ruby uh, before moving to Elasticsearch, and uh, you know Elasticsearch is a way for you to use Java in your Ruby program, and I think that you know viewing your own services that way is probably sensible. Yeah, I, I think it's a great point, and and if you, you think about it, what I described in the past, uh, before, when you have autonomous teams, you want to let the teams pretty much decide, even on the programming language of the of the tool itself of the service that they're writing, right? So, um, right, and you want to trust them to pick the right the right language. Now, different organizations might have different um, different limitations or requirements. For example, um, I think some some organization will say you, know, you only have to to use a JVM language because we don't want to deal with deployment issues of Right. strange languages but I think I think the world is moving towards more and more towards an SOA architecture and um, and specifically disadvantages of being able to pick the right right tool for the job language or other service right um, being it like you said elastic or a NoSQL database or anything else this is something that um, we need to we need to be able to do for individual services because different services have different scalability needs and different requirements and different characteristics well cool i really enjoyed our conversation today um sure me too yeah it was you know sometimes the episodes go in different directions we sort of went into the weeds a little bit on desk.com and some of the choices and maybe that's a reflection of uh what i've been thinking about this week or maybe that's just what we were destined to to talk about but i i, I enjoyed it quite a bit yeah, me too. It was great talking to you. All right. Thanks well, where me. where can uh, I, I sort of as a tradition, I do an awful job at the beginning of an episode asking someone to introduce themselves. So let's do it at the end. So where can people uh, reach you online? So I'm I'm O R N D O R E N D at Twitter. I also have a blog, um, re-factor.com, or just refactor.com, and yeah. Uh, I'm on GitHub or ND as well, so you can find my email there. Um, so reach out with any 
any any question or anything else is your preferred uh, medium twitter or or something else um anything goes i mean yeah twitter is fine email also works now when someone tweets at you does it show up in like a desk.com application that you're managing <laughs> um it doesn't um not that many people um tweet at me but maybe after this uh episode goes live i will need to set up oh yeah that's what's called instance for for this purpose you'll only. need to manage your interactions <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> well great Orin. uh i appreciate the time and uh for folks that want to connect with me i'm barely known on twitter